Changing Lanes, the official podcast of BMW. Welcome to this episode of Changing Lanes, the official podcast of BMW. My name is Jonathan, and today on the podcast, we have a very special guest, British racing driver Charlie Barton. She's made history as one of the first out transgender people in motorsports, breaking a huge barrier in a largely hetero male sport and industry. Not only that, but she is now focusing on breaking the next barrier, becoming the first trans person to compete in the iconic 24 Hours of Le Mans, the oldest active endurance sports car race in the world. Charlie, welcome to the show. Hi, Jonathan. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> My pleasure. So I, I know that I covered some things in the intro, um, but definitely not everything. So maybe do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, so, um, well, I, I come from Leicestershire in the, the middle of England, uh, which is, uh, yeah, not too far from Silverstone. It's pretty handy. Um, <laughs> I'm, uh, oh, a few little facts about me. Um, I have a cat. Um, I'm ambidextrous. I, uh, I'm a bigger, big, you know, sports lover. I love trail running and uh, surfing, snowboarding, things like that. Um, I, uh, you know, right now I've just been um, having, a, I guess, a, a slightly strange time, like a lot of people really getting through this this summer, but um, also been, been lucky to have had a, a pretty good racing season, racing over in Germany at, at the Nürburgring. And uh, yeah, right now, just um, looking to looking to next year, making plans for the for the 2021 season, uh, continuing training and all the all the kind of normal day to day things I'm trying to do and uh, getting ready for my my final race of this season later this month. Wow. So many things going on, so active, and that is just fantastic. And, you know, there's a million things that I want to ask you and talk to you about, but um, instead of me jumping all over the place from sheer excitement, why don't we start at the very beginning, at eight years old, when you wondered about sports and originally you wanted to become a fighter pilot. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> tell, us, tell us a little bit about the spark in you that made you become a race driver. So... I, I mean, I was born in the 80s and there's a very famous film, which I'm sure you can think of, called Top Gun, which yes. was my favourite film when I was growing up. And I mean, I must have watched that film, I don't know how many times, but I was fascinated with flying and the idea of becoming a fighter pilot when I was young. So for a long time, that was that was all I really thought about. And I suppose that yeah that whole world of speed and adrenaline and and doing something just just yeah amazing like flying um was always you know it was always at the forefront of my mind mm. and i i kind of gave up on the idea of being a fighter pilot uh, when i was coming into my teens unfortunately i was uh I just realised I don't I wouldn't get the grades because uh, you know maths and, and physics are subjects that I've always struggled with. And uh, around that time, I had a really good friend at school called Hamish, and his dad was a racing driver. And I would go over to his friend, well, go go you know go over to his house for the weekend, and we would uh, you know 
occasionally go racing with his dad. I remember the first time he was like, yeah, you know, if you want to come this weekend, it's cool, but we're going to be camping and we'll be in the race paddock and trying to help my dad out and, and everything. And so, yeah, I just threw myself into that experience. And I really loved being in the paddock. I, I loved that whole environment and, and being up close and feeling mm. like you're actually a part of what's happening. Yeah, I, I think that was something that just really, really sparked my imagination. And, uh, you know, previously I'd only ever seen motorsport on television. And I, I think when you see it up close, you hear it, you you even smell it. You know, it's a very visceral environment to, to find yourself in as a, as a mm. young child as well. So I guess I was like, yeah, eight, nine, ten years old the first time that happened. And uh, so, yeah, growing up, I, 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 you know, when I started playing computer games, they were always like, you know, racing games and things like that. Learning to drive, uh, it was car culture was quite a, quite an important thing for me and my friends. We all had quite like modified cars and stuff like that. Mm. So I, I think wow. we all, yeah, it was just just whether it was motorsport or more car culture, it was just something that was a theme running through my entire childhood, really. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And and like you said, with, with car culture and, and, you know, making it work for you and, and stuff like that, uh, you bought a Formula Renault and built a race truck motorhome in four months. Is that right? And then <laughs> you competed yeah. uh, and, and had a crazy adventure that lasted three years. Like, that's amazing. Um, so what was one of what was one thing that you learned about starting a career in motorsport during that time from from you know have being in the paddock and getting that that excitement and that and that experience that visceral experience to actually doing it yourself and and creating this career hey i mean one of the first things i learned is that motorsport is uh you know it's a difficult industry mm. to a difficult sport to to just get into especially when you don't have any family history of, of competing or anything like that. I mean, uh, I, I, you know, I, I lost my dad to, to cancer when I was quite young and, and and my mom as well, not, you know, not that long after when I was in my early 20s. So I, I never had that traditional, you know, um, sort of routine that most, most kids tend to, mm. you know, when they start karting and everything like that. Um, and... But I also learned that, yeah, although it can seem quite opaque to somebody on the outside looking inwards, that it depends where you want to start. Mm. And actually, there are ways into motorsport which are quite accessible. And for me, that was hill climbing because I'd, I experienced circuit racing and hill climbing and sprinting with, with my friend and his dad. And uh, hill climbing seems like something where yeah, you know, if you don't know a lot about cars, you can almost turn up in your road car and just drive that. And, wow. You know, it's not, it's, you don't need to be able to strip an engine to pieces and uh, all the other things that you typically think somebody might have all that that knowledge and that training. And of course, through being there and, and what, you know, once I started racing, I found that, that that paddock was really, really helpful. You know, people were super friendly, people wanted to see younger people coming into the sport, of yeah. course. And so there was, um, as much as I loved the racing, I actually 
I love sharing my time with people who shared the same passion yeah. because we all had that amazing connection that brought us together. And and yeah, you'd stand around a weekend talking to people about cars. So you pick a lot up, you yeah. learn a lot just through being in that environment. And uh, so, I, I mean, yeah, when I began, I, I didn't really have any massive aspirations about having a career for you know for me at that point in my life it was more of a hobby yeah and i'll be honest i i didn't think that it was anything that would really go beyond that i thought <laughs> okay you know this is this is my yeah this is my kind of happy place i like hill climbing it's great and uh you know in terms of i always said to myself well because i've not done karting no one will ever take me seriously i don't have the the, the level of ability that, that that people do have you've done that route and um you know i'll never have the money that that you need to go beyond this stage but as you say i mean i reached that point where i went off to race in france and i realized that there was a whole opportunity to go and compete abroad mm. and and I just threw myself at it. I, yeah, I, I sold my car. I bought the Formula Renault and built myself a motorhome that was like a kind of motorhome come racetrack. So uh -huh. it was like the car went on the bottom and then there was like a, a tail lift and then there was like a mezzanine floor that I built above it. So it was pretty <laughs> compact, I'll be honest. But I just looked at it like necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah. And if I want to go racing in Europe... I have to have a truck that I can live in, you know, with a bed and a shower and stuff like that. And, and yeah, I just lived like this kind of nomad racing and traveling around France. And it was a just, yeah, an incredible thing to do. I, I think there's something to be said about, you know, you saying that you weren't born into a family of, of motorsport and it wasn't handed down to you, that you you had this thing in you that said, oh, I just want to go out and try and see and and explore and experiment. And if it doesn't work, then it doesn't work. But at least I tried that 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 thing inside of you is so inspirational to me and surely to our podcast listeners of you have that spark in you. And, you know, if you don't listen to that spark, it's it's going to grow and grow and grow until you explode out and then say, OK, I don't know why. But I have to build my own race truck motorhome and get to France to to compete. I absolutely love that. You, do you know, it, it all started because I, I'd always watched European hill climbing on YouTube and I wanted to go and do it. But I just said it's impossible. You know, I mm. live in England. I have a job here and so on and so on. And I, I went over there and had an amazing result. Uh, I just entered this race as a one off and and just in the way you described really actually i had this feeling in me that this feeling in my gut that i have to go over there and race like something some kind of instinct whatever you want to call it determination to to do something which everyone around me pretty much was saying this is crazy like how mm. are you going to do this on your own mm. what how, how this what if this you know what if you crash what if and ordinarily, when everybody around you who has probably a lot more experience is saying, don't do this, it's a bad idea, it's a silly idea, <laughs> you know, you listen. But something in me just said, yeah, do you know, they're wrong and I can mm. do this and I'm going to prove not only 
to them to them but prove to myself that i could yeah. do this that i yeah. i'm capable and i have the yeah the just the raw determination to yeah. make this work and it was that. hard it was hard work but you know what an experience exactly exactly wow so let's move on over to motorsport being a heavily male dominated industry i mean it was groundbreaking news when Flick Haig was the first woman to achieve an overall win in the British GT Championship. And I mean, even you've said that only 6% of UK race license holders are female, which blew my mind. So, Charlie, who are your female role models that you look up to on and also off of the racetrack? Yeah, I think in terms of the racetrack, I mean, I'd have to say Michelle Mouton. Uh, mm-hmm. firstly because of what she was doing back at a time when female visibility and representation in motorsport was so so much thinner than it is today and mm. of course there were there were other women racing in that era but um, I, I think yeah I, I think racing in group B and, and having the successes that that she had and and also racing at pikes peak which is something that's still an ambition of mine uh i i think uh i think yeah i I think she's someone who's had a huge impact in terms of inspiring other women to come into the sport and Mm. also what she's doing now as as president of the women's commission in the fia uh i think moving away from motorsport i'd say jesse graff Who's someone who, uh, if you're not familiar, she's a, an American athlete who competes on Ninja Warrior, mm-hmm. which is something I did in the UK. <laughs> so I, I think I really appreciate the firsthand the the strength and agility that's required to get to the high stages of competition yeah. in Ninja Warrior. And if you look at us, like the videos of of stuff she does, like training and then the comp- the Ninja Warrior competitions, just an incredible athlete and her strength. I mean, anyone who says women don't have the physical strength to compete in Formula One, go and watch Jesse Graf mm. because that will completely do a whole system reset on on any kind of argument against that. I think she's just an amazing. Um, I think as well, you know, people are a bit a little bit like unheard of these days. You know, throughout history. I remember I was researching a project and I came across Valentina Tereshkova. She was the first woman into space. Oh, wow. And and I was, I just kind of went down a rabbit hole on her story. And, you know, she logged more flight time than any previous astronaut, any US astronaut that came before her. Really? And she really, yeah, she really set like a massive benchmark. And yet, one of the reasons I found her story so compelling is that, you know, when you think of the space race, you know, everyone can name Neil Armstrong, mm. Buzz Aldrin, you know, the first men to walk on the moon and, and so on and so on. But I, I thought, you know, I, I bet very few people would be able to name her. And yet her achievements were were just incredible, regardless yeah. of whether, you know, she was a male or female. But as a, you know, as a woman in that era, achieving that was just, yeah, just wow. Fantastic. You know, I, I, I can't hold it in any longer. I, I need to ask and go completely off topic really quickly. 
I'm a huge fan of Ninja Warrior. How was it being on the chorus? <laughs> you know, it it really, ah, oh, it's really scary actually because yeah, when you well, insofar as well, maybe scary is not the right word. It's really um, say when you compete on the program, and you, you the first time you really get to go on the course. That's that's you on the course, standing there on television. That is your attempt. So there's no pre-run. There's no practice no, run. No, oh my no practice gosh. Run. We we get you get to go in and you see the course from the side, like standing <laughs> down on the ground, uh, with one of the course testers showing you how to do it or how not to. You know, if you put your hand here, you disqualify. That right. Kind of thing. So the first time you see it in first person view, laid out ahead of you, is when you do it, and it really gives you an appreciation of when you're sitting at home on your sofa watching something like that going, oh, no, no, why are you doing it like that? Oh, you yeah. know, something looks really, really easy. Believe me, it's not. <laughs> when you're there for the first time, it's, uh, yeah, you, you just suddenly focus and everything else kind of evaporates away. Mm. But it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a, I had an amazing time being on that show. Wow. Uh, it, everyone on it was so inspiring. All the other contestants and the, the people that make it. It was, yeah. And uh, getting up the wall first time. Wow. It's got to be one of my greatest moments. I think. <laughs> yeah. Hitting that big red button and the fireworks go off. Of course. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, like you said, with the with the having your your tunnel vision focus on on the course. I mean, that's that's you know something that you have to do when you're when you're behind the wheel as well on the racetrack. And um, so bringing it back to motorsport, <laughs> thank you for indulging me about uh, Ninja Warrior. Um, well, the positive thing about motorsport is that there is no gender division, which is different with other sports. So tell us a little bit more about that and how that makes you feel. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that I really love about mm. motorsport. I mean, there's there's a few different layers to this. I think first things first i i just love being in uh, you know love being a woman in this sport i think it's uh you know it's it's great to be in a sport where men and women compete equally mm. where where there is there is no separation and it, it's all about just getting in the car and and doing your best um mm. i mean you know fitness and strength to an extent i think yeah you know depending on what type of car you're driving certainly if you're in a single seat you do need a lot of fitness and strength but but nonetheless i think the fact that women have consistently demonstrated that that we do have everything it takes to to win Mm. in this sport is really yeah really a really compelling uh, vision of just equality really mm, um, totally and, and I, I yeah i love being a part of that i love i you know i love when you tell someone you're a racing driver and they they're like oh you know it, it's always a surprise to them yeah i think as, as a woman it makes me very proud to be doing something that um yeah that maybe goes against the grain I, i'm all for breaking down gender stereotypes i think that's it's something that we there's a lot of positives that come from doing that and i think Fundamentally, people should just do what they love doing and what they're good at doing, mm. whether that's a career, a sport, whatever. 
Um, Amen. Amen. So I, I think being a part of that is cool, but I think also, you know, the other layer is really that as a, a, a trans woman, I, I feel I feel very lucky, genuinely, that I compete in a sport that's mixed because I think we're going through, you know, we're going through a period of where there's a lot of a lot of transphobia in elements of the media and mm. certainly in terms of sports. I mean, just recently, you know, in the last week or so, we've had World Rugby declare that trans women are going to be banned from competing in professional level rugby. Really? Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to go too deep into this because it's a very, I, I realize it's a very divisive argument and yeah. there's, there's so much we could say around it. But I think the worrying thing with that is that just just on a simplistic level, it sets a very worrying precedent for mm. other sports because other sports will look at this and sport is something that brings us all together yeah. and unites us all, whether as, as fans or as players or whatever. And I think that anything that, that creates division uh, is, is, you know, it's, it's a sad, sad thing to see happen. So I, I feel, yeah, I feel very fortunate that I compete in a sport where there's no question of that that argument being used mm. against me that someone's saying oh you know i have a f an unfair advantage or or something like that because you know my experience on ninja warrior taught me that you know there were there were women and girls on that show who are every bit as stronger than as strong as me or stronger than me so mm. you know i have i have um you know some yeah i think some some pretty pretty well-informed views on that but yeah. yeah i just you know i i love doing what i do yeah it's as simple as that i can tell <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um speaking about the gender division and everything even with no gender division still motorsport is a heavily male heteronormative world so when you decided to transition that was a massive struggle for you. I mean, you even said, um, I thought people would make fun of me. I thought people would be unkind. And the sport that I love, obviously, as you've been telling us today, would end up being the thing that I hated. When you said that, that tr it truly broke my heart. Um, and you couldn't bear to see that happen. So my question to you is, would you like to tell us more about what was going on for you when you did decide to transition? I reached a very dark place in my life if i'm honest mm. and probably the lowest point i've ever gone to and there have been some pretty low points in my life you know as i said losing both my parents it's kind of i've i've had my fair share of adversity to overcome but mm. but this just i i known i was trans from six maybe seven years old but it was something i'd never dealt with and I continually come to this crossroads where I had to make a decision. Only this time things had got so difficult for me to to try and act like this wasn't happening anymore. Mm. That I knew I there was only one way forwards yeah. if I wanted to carry on living. And a big catalyst for this decision was actually discovering people like me for the first time in my life. Mm -hmm. People who were relatable because I'd gone through my life growing up, of course, you know, the 80s, the 90s, there was no internet, no YouTube or anything like this. And so the only transgender people I'd ever seen presented to me were a, a character in a film or um, 
basically a very negative portrayal of a transgender person. Mm. And so there was this massive disconnect between what I felt about who I am as a person, as a human being, and the reality of transition and, and what that might look like. And suddenly I discovered people like me vlogging about their transition on YouTube. And these were people my own age, people with normal lives and normal ups and downs and all these things. And it was a complete game changer for me because wow. suddenly these people, yeah, they were relatable. Like they, they, they were just going through the same thing I was going through. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it was like someone told me the world isn't flat anymore. You know? <laughs> and I realized that uh, there was a whole life I could be living mm -hmm. that I wasn't living. Mm -hmm. And the realization that maybe I was going to live my entire life and never know who I am. That's a pretty depressing thought. Yeah, of course. You know, see yourself in the mirror in the morning and see this reflection staring back at you and think, I have no idea who this person is because wow. they don't feel like me. And so, yeah, I think having to make that choice was, was really, in some ways, really hard, but actually once... I'd rationalized it on my mind. It was a very straightforward process because, mm. they, uh, you know, even now people in 2020, people still feel like they have to choose between who they are as a person and uh, who they are in their career, who they are in their sport. It, it's, it's so sad because I know the difference this has made to me in my life. And yeah. that's why I'm fighting to increase acceptance and positive change because mm. I want, I want everybody to be able to have what I've had. You know, mm. it's a simple human right. Exactly. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. It's helping a lot of our podcast listeners know what was going on for you during your transition. So thank you. Um, and you took the time to transition for yourself, which is very important. But then there was also another huge hurdle to overcome, which was coming out as a trans woman to the motorsport world in 2012. Oof. So if you're willing... Could you tell us more about the process of coming out to the motorsport world and how that made you feel? It made me feel terrified. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is is the simple answer to that question. I I gave up because I just thought I'm never going to be accepted in the paddock as as me in in the early stages of transition. There are just so many unknowns for me, and that was probably one of the greatest. Mm. I'd never seen anybody in motorsport who was LGBTQ. Uh, not firsthand, not th through a colleague or a story, not through anyone I'd seen on television, nowhere. You know, there was just, there was nothing to tell me that people would... That if I if I am going to be the you know if I'm going to go through this process that, that actually yeah I'm going to be supported mm. and and when you can't see that support it's it's really it's it makes you feel quite quite bleak yeah. really because you know anecdotally I'd heard people come out with you know normal sort of casual homophobic remarks or just things that. That I, I I just couldn't imagine how this was ever going to be okay, mm. uh, and it's worth saying as well because, you know, now people see me 
I look, you know, I'm comfortable with the way I look and I and the way I sound and everything else. But back in 2012, I, you know, I didn't look and sound like this. It was mm. a very different story for me. I was very, I felt very conspicuous in that stage of my transition. I felt like I stuck out like a sore thumb. I didn't have anything like the confidence and self-belief that I have now, which mm. mean that I can walk into you know, I do public speaking these days. I can walk on a stage in front of hundreds of people and I get a few butterflies, but, but <laughs> I'm a very different person to who yeah. I was back then. And so when I came out and told a couple of friends, two of my best friends, one of them never spoke to me again. Oh, jeez. You know, and that's two people. And so I'm like, well, that's not a very good start. Mm. And yeah, walking back into the paddock for the first time, by the time I'd finally built up to saying, to myself, I need to go back. I need to see if I have a future here. And there's only mm. one way, there's only one way I'm going to find that out. And that's yeah. to actually just jump in at the deep end and do it. And yeah, I just remember walking into a sea of blank faces, really. Uh, of all the people that I knew that day, a lot of them didn't know what was happening, maybe didn't recognize me, just didn't know what to say. Yeah. And so, yeah, six or seven, eight, nine maybe of my friends came over from the class that I raced in and gave me a big hug and all smiles and and just really made me feel that they were so happy to see me back That's racing great. and That's great. yeah if they hadn't have done that I mean that one you know that one gesture from them and the love that I felt in that moment was was really profound and mm. that was the thing that made me think okay next year i'll come back on our race mm. and if this is as bad as it gets well it can only get better exactly yeah. exactly you know i i absolutely love how you've explained that that one gesture you know of eight or nine friends coming over giving you a hug checking in with you seeing how you're doing um yeah, I think there's a lot of lack of understanding and lack of understanding can lead to awkwardness out of fear of saying the wrong thing. But I absolutely admire you for taking the initiative to start a discussion that opened things up and just walking through the doors of the paddock, just being there and being able to start a conversation to help inform people. That was very brave of you. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. It was, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't an easy thing to do. Uh, like I say, I had no choice. I had mm. to go in at the deep end. And yeah. I mean, yeah, a lot of my life has felt like that, just uh, jumping in at the deep end. And mm. uh, once you've done that enough times, it forces you to be brave. And uh, I mean, there's a quote I love from Babe Ruth, actually, that I come back to a lot, which is, it's hard to beat a person who never gives up. <laughs> and it's, it kind of feels like my mantra sometimes because uh yeah you know when you just when you persevere at something when you dig your heels in and you think yeah this is tough this is gonna this is gonna take some courage but you do that enough times and you build strength, you build resilience, something I often end up talking about, you know, where does resilience come from? And it's, it's all those small victories that add up to make the big ones. And when you're feeling in a moment, 
for whatever reason, like, I can't do this. I just think back to those times when I've proven myself wrong and I have I have done something like that. And I've, you know, it, it, it gives you that boost to push on. Mm. But I think, as you say, empathy is always the key thing there. It's about creating that human connection because yeah. I found that time and time again, through my own experiences and, and, and so many other trans people I know, that people hang back. Uh, and actually other friends as well. I've got a very good friend of mine, Natalie McGloin, uh, who's also a racing driver. Who she's in a, she, I mean, she was in a, a car accident uh, on the road. And so she she's disabled and she's doing incredible work for uh, with work at the FIA to improve disability and access, well, to improve accessibility for disabled people in motorsport. And wow. you know, she said the same thing. It's like when people don't know what's the right thing to say, they find it easier to say nothing mm. and so i just always try to start that dialogue with people because as soon as you form that human connection uh that's how you start to build empathy and that's how you you really then start to create change because when people understand you and people empathize with you and feel what you've gone through and appreciate it that's that's what really makes lasting change. I think that's what, uh, yeah, that's what enables you to start making that impact when you can talk to people and they understand you. Most definitely. Empathy is definitely the key to starting the conversations, even if they're awkward and getting informed, learning more about another person and another person's situation. Um, and like you said, with the with the small victories to build your confidence, I mean, you even said that uh, since transitioning, you've been taking control of your life and the way that's manifested itself in your career has been nothing short of groundbreaking. And I got to tell you, it's true from the outside. I'm, I'm blown away. So um, tell us a little bit more about the successes you've had on and off the track. I think, uh, I mean, on the track, really, uh, uh, this all changed for me when I when I started transition. And mm. uh, as you say, it, it, it was just this complete shift in my outlook and and I think how that enabled me to focus and think because I I've been living in denial my whole life and I'd always had this it's like part of my brain focused on suppressing who I was and, and when I when I stopped doing that I was able to concentrate and and do so many things and this was you know this first really showed itself when I went off to France in 2014 and I uh I, I entered a race that I yeah I just had no previous expectations long story short I broke the class record and I I won by three seconds which wow. in hill climb is yeah and hill climb that's like a country mile wow and uh, and that was the that was a catalyst for me going right I need to go and race in France <laughs> and uh, and so yeah then there followed three years of of just continually getting on the podium and and fantastic results and and then going to uh 2017 the final year competing over there i had the opportunity to to move into circuit racing and to do an endurance race in the prototype i'd been competing in and so i did that at le mans on the bugatti circuit and uh and you know long story short hey i've hardly done any circuit racing i finished 
in third place. And, <laughs> wow. and I'm standing there on the podium at Le Mans with the full 24-hour logos on the backdrop. And, and I just had this real epiphany. It's the only way I can describe it, where I the last time I'd been there was yeah, 16 years previously, before I was even racing as a spectator, before I even thought I would transition. And I, I never dreamt that one day I'd be on the other side of the fence, <laughs> stood on the podium at, at this event as me, as the real me. Yeah. And I thought, this is this is one of the greatest moments in my life. Wow. And and this is a sign that if I can get, if I can go through everything I've gone through and, and get here, then I have to go for the 24 hours. Mm. And... And it was, yeah, it was a huge moment. And, and I think really in terms of successes I've had off the track, a lot a lot of things that have come since because it inspired me to, you know, to really start using my platform at that point in time to, to come back to the UK and start racing and say, okay, look, this is who I am. This is, I'm a racing driver. I'm a, a Ninja Warrior contestant. I'm also transgender. Uh, this isn't the thing that defines me, but it's right. it's it's part of it's shaped part of who I am, and I'm proud to be me. And and everything that's come, you know, since in terms of yeah, working with charities, and it's really it's really been uh, enabled me to do more. I mm. think, mm. and that's the exact direction I wanted to go in with you just now, talking about the charities. You know, you you just such an inspiration. Anyway, and then doing charity work, you know, in 2018, you initiated a campaign that led over 100 drivers competing with rainbow stickers on their cars in honor of Pride Month. It was a rare showing of solidarity in the heteromasculine world of motorsports. And then one year later, in 2019, you helped launch the advocacy organization Racing Pride. And you continue to work with LGBTQ organizations like Stonewall, Mermaids, and many others. So what is it like working with LGBTQ organizations to bring awareness to trans rights? It's it's a very proud feeling, to be mm. honest. I think uh, I think it's something that needs to happen more and more. I think uh, you know the the trans community has made some big steps forwards, but I think that we have a long way to go still to to really create the level of acceptance in society that uh, that, that that anyone else takes for granted. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's fantastic because it, working with charities like Stonewall and Mermaids and Athlete Ally and Racing Pride, it it really lends authority to to what I'm doing in terms of, I think, giving me that additional support yeah. platform to do more. Uh, because I think being, you know, having a platform is fantastic, and when you have that, you want to do, you want to use it. For, in the best way possible mm. to do the most to have the, the best impact you can and i think being able to draw on the resources of, of of charities especially like stonewall who are so you know so invested in creating legislation to improve the rights and lives of the lgbtq community that they have huge experience and resources to help you know, to help me do what I'm doing at the best of my ability, you know, learning about policies or if I'm doing an interview with the media to have some some guidance from them. Um, you know, when when you can look at what we can do together. Yeah. 
you know, all the people working there to combine their energy and, and achieve more, but also having people like the sports champion program that they instigated a, a year ago, which I'm proud to be a part of. I think having those people who are role models to other kids and we all know the impact that sport can have. So I think being, you know, being visible in sport can can reach so many people and can really can really change hearts and minds. Exactly. Like you said in the beginning of the interview, you know, growing up in the 80s, there weren't that many people that you could identify with in on TV or in the movies. And now look at you. You are the role model that's inspiring so many other people out there in the world. It's it's amazing what you're doing. I'm I'm blown away. Thank you. Um, so back to work. <laughs> You're recently you recently raced in the 24 hours at the Nurburgring as the first trans driver to do so. Congratulations! How did that feel? And what have you learned in preparation for the 24 hours of Le Mans? I I mean, it it felt like something completely wild. If you're <laughs> uh, I've uh, yeah I've, I've I've always watched the. The racing on the Nord on the Nordschleife, and uh, <clears throat> you know, especially the twenty four hour race, with with fascination, but also huge respect and trepidation mm. for anyone who competes in that race of because course. it's so so tough, and in many ways tougher than than Le Mans because of the unforgiving nature of the track. So, I mean. It, it taught me a huge amount. It was uh, again, you know, a bit like jumping in at the deep end this year because we had uh, we had the race in September as opposed to May, so we had double the amount of running at night. We had some huge rain, which is probably fairly normal there. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and yeah, it taught me a lot about yeah, just things like practical things, how the team works, how we yeah. develop a strategy for the driver stints, and how to. Yeah, just just working with your teammates about things like that because each driver has their their preferences and and trying to manage everybody's, um, <clears throat> you know what's what's going to get the best out of each driver mm. and 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 you know what's going to play to everyone's strengths. But then there's also an element of compromise to, um, you know, in the car setup and 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 all these different things. And and I think it's it's one thing having an appreciation of that but it's another thing to go and do it for the first time and uh yeah working with your teammates and motivating each other it's it's a fantastic feeling it really really is and and i think also learning about the level of focus that you need when yeah. you're driving for long periods of time like that because i mean we were driving one hour 40 stints wow so it's a long time just to be in the car and then uh, you know to, to cut out of the car cool down uh, have some food, relax, uh, then knowing how to how to then get yourself back in the back in the kind of you know racing mode mm. uh, at, at crazy times in the morning, in the middle of the night, and and, and then I think all the training to prepare for that as well, yeah. you know, to improve your focus. Like I yeah. do a lot of meditation. I meditate every day, and you know, training on the sim and fitness and you know your diet all, all these things so it's it if it made me feel like coming away from that i certainly feel like i've taken a big big step towards mm. the 24 hours of le mans 
And I think also having the result that we had coming away with fourth place in, in class, you know, one step away from the podium for your first Nürburgring 24-hour race was, yeah, it made me feel like this is this is a really good, yeah, a really good step towards achieving that goal. And it, and it tells me I'm doing things right, yeah. basically. And in the 24 hours, you drove the BMW M240i racing. Charlie, what was that like? I've I've really loved racing this car this season. I've got to be honest. Uh, the 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 car is so the the M240i. It was it was a bit of a challenge to me after the car I was in last year, which had a mm-hmm. huge amount of downforce. And obviously on the Nordschleife, you have so many undulations and bumps. I mean, you have three hundred meters of elevation, so any car moves around a lot. And so it trying to drive the car on the absolute limit you're always you're always working the balance and yeah it especially in the wet when the grip level is changing you're constantly from corner Mm. to corner so you really have to be on your toes on any on any car and i mean it 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 forces you to to focus like you can't leave your lose your focus for a moment um, wow. one of the great things about this car as well is that it has so much torque so you have to bear in mind the whole race was wet so the engine gives you a lot of flexibility because the three liter straight six twin turbo has such a great amount of torque from from low revs you can put the car in a higher gear and and in the wet it gives you more stability so it's it's as a driver, you know, you're always having to try and find ways to, to try and find grip because it's the grip is changing from corner to corner. And so that, that kind of power delivery really helps you. And yeah, it, on a, on a, on a 24 hour race, anything that gives you an advantage. So yeah, it was, it was fantastic to drive there. A lot of fun. Fantastic. All right. The moment that we've all been waiting for, oh, you are looking to race at the iconic 24-hour of Le Mans as the first trans person to compete in one of the most important races in the world. Oh, wow. What was the spark that made you decide to compete in Le Mans? <laughs> I think it was probably going there for the first time in 2001. Yeah. I mean, I'd always had this awareness of of the 24 hours of Le Mans and the significance of, of what it is, you know, the romance of this oldest and most enormous endurance race with over a quarter of a million spectators. And and I when I went there and experienced it for the first time, I'd I'd only ever been to club races or, you know, I'd seen a few things at Donington, which is quite near me, like I'd seen DTM there and the European Le Mans series. But I'd never witnessed anything on the scale of Le Mans. Mm. And being there for almost a whole week, I remember the year I went with my oldest brother. And the first year we went, I'm sure it was like the wettest Le Mans they ever <laughs> had on record. And we got completely soaked to the bone. So many, and then it would dry out and then it would soak us again. And this has happened so many times throughout the entire entire week i mean it, you know it's an endurance event for the drivers and the teams but we'll say for the spectators which, yeah. when you're experiencing that and i, I just you, know, you you get a lot of access at, at endurance racing you know you get to go in the 
walk down the pits and, and see things pretty close up. And I just came away feeling like, you know, because this was before I was racing, remember? Mm. And I just went away and I felt like if this, if, if I ever had the money to go racing, you know, mm. like someone, you know, I had a lottery win or some um, eccentric long lost uncle left me <laughs> <laughs> a fortune or something like that. This, this is without doubt what I would, what I would do in motorsport. And then when I started racing, sure, um, it, it, you know, initially never even thinking I'd have the budget to go circuit racing. Fast forward to 2017 and that moment when I was stood on that podium and <laughs> I remember that weekend, I remember walking into the garage, well, walking into the circuit on my way into the garage for the first time with my kit bag over my shoulder, waving to the, the guy on the security gates. And thinking, this is a real pinch me moment. You yeah, know, I, I, I was back to where I was when I was two thousand and one, and and I never dreamt that I'd be the other side of the fence. You know, I'm walking into the garage, thinking, imagine of all the people who've stood in this garage throughout the years. You know, all the famous drivers, all the famous teams, all the iconic cars, and and I'm here, I'm here doing this, mm. and and. And when I was on that podium, I just thought, this is crazy. You know, I, I, if I can, if I can get here, I can get, you know, I can do this. This is like a, a sign, you know, it's like the universe trying to say to me, just keep going. Yeah. You know, you're going in the right direction. Just keep pushing. A living testament to manifesting something from, from the stand as a spectator to now behind the wheel. Fantastic. And you spoke a little bit about training, but especially now in these crazy times with Corona, how's training been going for you since Corona has has hit? How's that changed your training and, and how's it going? Well, I've been very fortunate to be racing in Germany this year because I think the, the, the race season on the Nordschleife actually got back up and running. It was probably one of the first uh, the first seasons to get us back on track. So inevitably, we had a huge break between uh, between March and when we actually got racing in June. Mm. But nonetheless, I mean, I did a lot of esports racing this summer, uh, like like most racing drivers. But I was fortunate to race in some you know some big championships like the ABB Formula E Race at Home Challenge, where I raced with BMW, which is which is pretty cool. Wow! Um, I put over two hundred hours of of driving and and racing into that championship, so it was a huge commitment from from my side, but something that that was a an amazing opportunity to to really throw yourself really throw yourself into a, a you know, top level esports series like that. So yeah, inevitably, you know, getting back in the car was a good feeling. Um, for the first time, there was a, a, again a big gap between I driven between when I did my testing on the Nordschleife, which only culminated with about eight laps, <laughs> to actually going out into my first race weekend. So uh, yeah, alongside that, a lot of a lot of running and cycling, and I, I'm fortunate to live in the countryside. So during lockdown, I still had the freedom to to experience some of the amazing weather we had in the UK this summer and spring nice. and just to try and keep my mind focused. I feel like when I'm, 
Yeah, when I'm doing a lot of physical training, I mean, trail running is a massive part of my life, but also going to the gym now, it's back open. And yeah, it's helped me keep that, you know, keep that rhythm of 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 training um, present, even if I kind of throttled off a little bit. I think, uh, yeah, it's it's gone pretty well. Fantastic. Fantastic. So other than Le Mans, which is a huge <laughs> goal in and of itself, other than that, what else are you looking forward to for the future? Is there anything big coming up other than Le Mans that you can tell us about? So I recently announced that I'm going to be racing for Praga in the Brick Car Endurance Series next year. Wow. Which is a really amazing, amazing opportunity and a big step to towards, you know, towards getting to Le Mans. Because, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, like a complete rocket ship, the Praga yeah. R1, you know, 600, 620 kilos in a carbon chassis with a 380 horsepower, two litre turbo engine, huge Jeez. aero package. Yeah. So to be in a, a car with that kind of performance envelope is, is going to be really, really exciting. I've got a, yeah. a good fast teammate, Jack Fabby, who's already racing the car this season with, with some good, good results. And, um, so I think, you know, we're going to be a great driving pairing for, for next season. Wonderful. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be testing the car actually tomorrow, which is, wow. uh, yeah, which has got me, uh, got my bags packed and everything right now. <laughs> so I'm really, yeah, really, really looking forward to that. I think uh, having it all ready set up and, and ready to go at this point in the season, when you consider a lot of the chaos we've had to deal with and work around in 2020 it's nice mm. to think that that's that's all happening and to have the opportunity of working with a, a manufacturer like Praga is, is is you know exciting and i think really just hoping that obviously the covid situation um kind of levels out and we can we can find our way back to some kind of normality and, and be able to enjoy motorsport with fans i think that's been yeah, strange, strange feeling this year, especially say at the twenty-four hour race where you'd normally have over two hundred thousand people. For me, it was my first time there, so it was it was still a yeah an eye-opening uh, moment just to be there competing. And the fact that we didn't have all the fans wasn't quite such a a drawback. But I know for a lot of the regular drivers, it was they they found it quite strange. Yeah, and, I'm sure. Uh, you know, when you watch the 24 hours of Le Mans this season, you know, it was nobody in the stands or anything. It was like watching a, a test day. It's yeah, such yeah. a such a strange thing to, to witness. But yeah, I, I think um, I, I'm sure I'm sure we'll we'll get back to some kind of normality next year. And fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Most definitely. With everything that you've achieved in your life so far, the highs, the lows and everything in between. Is Charlie Martin happy? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a Virgo, so I'm I'm never fully satisfied with my <laughs> achievements. I've got to say, but I'd, I'd say I'd say you know fundamentally, yes, I am I am happy. Um, I'm happy with what I've achieved so far in my life. Uh, certainly, I think uh, I feel like yeah, I'm, I'm happy. I feel like I've there's still a lot more I want to do, so I'm I'm still very um, very driven, um, 
end up saying that a lot. It probably sounds like a bit of a pun, but it's... Uh, <laughs> it's fitting. Yeah, yeah it, it works. Hey, yeah. I mean, you know, I feel like my life restarted mm. when I hit 30 and I started transition. And I feel like I opened up this whole new chapter of my life. And even in the context of, of the last yeah, nine or so years, since then, it's... Uh, I found happiness in in a piece that I never thought I would find in my lifetime and so that's something that I, yeah I can only be grateful for and uh yeah there's 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 a whole load of other things I want to I want to achieve going forwards I think one of my things that really fascinates me at the moment and is the idea of trying to become carbon neutral mm. I think as a racing driver that that you know there's a great example to set there and so I'm, something I'm looking into in terms of all aspects of my life how I can try and achieve achieve that and uh yeah just keep going on to to bigger and better things fantastic wow well from a spark as an eight-year-old wanting to be a fighter pilot to now training for the 24 hours of Lamont, charlie martin you are a force to be reckoned with from going through adversity of discovering who she is transitioning and coming out on the other side proving to herself and the entire world that by being your true self, you can achieve absolutely anything. Charlie, you've made a huge impression on me, and I hope it has also made an impression on our podcast listeners. Thank you so much for spending time with us today and being on the show. Thank you so much, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure to speak. And thank you for listening to this week's episode of Changing Lanes. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe to our podcast for future episodes. And to dive deeper into all things BMW, head on over to BMW.com to learn more. I'm Jonathan, and this has been Changing Lanes. See you next time. <laughs>